Brother Andre, good morning. How are you? Good morning to you. I'm well. How are you, Mike? Uh, I am well, but I don't... I mean, see, I ate all of my king cake uh, on Mondays, but you had king cake yesterday, so you got one up on me. Yeah, and thank you for that. Uh, it was wonderful, and I didn't... Uh, it, so we, we, we cut up the cake and divvied it up. Um, some went to the priory, some went to the, to the convent, and um, I ended up getting the baby, so <laughs> there you go. Did your mom get so a piece? That means... I, I, the, uh, 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 oh, uh, no. Oh, um, oh no. I'm going to tell. Yeah. <laughs> you know what? She, she, yeah, she, she gets one from my uncle. Uh, I think oh, from the okay. same bakery, by the way. Um, and she usually gives me most of it. So it gives us most of it. But, um, <laughs> yeah, so th there's, um, yeah. Yeah, pl plenty, plenty going, and uh, it's 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 officially King's Cake season all the way until uh, <laughs> Fat Tuesday, right? Yeah. Uh, now I had never had that particular one that uh, that uh, that praline one. Was it good? Oh, it was good because it had a lot of pecans on it. <laughs> no, he did. Even though he lives in New Hampshire now, he did not say pecans. No, no. I mean, and, and it's funny because I, I recently had a conversation, or I recently overheard a conversation where the proper pronunciation of that word was under discussion. <laughs> and I remember when I was a kid, I heard somebody say pecan, and my mom was like, yeah, that's not how we say it. She told me that later, you know. So she explained that that was sort of a Yankee thing. <laughs> so, brother, is it cold up in New Hampshire? I'm just wondering. It should be the peak of winter for you. It's... It, so New Hampshire weather, New England winter is is very weird. It vacillates quite a bit, and uh, I think this is why people get sick. Not because it's so cold all the time, but because it's it's you'll get these weird days where it's in the 40s uh, or or even higher temperature. But we we've, we've had some thawing, and we're 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 we've had two little micro mud seasons. Because in spring, when everything melts, we get what we call mud season on these wonderful roads around here. And um, and on our property itself, uh, because of the the way that the water, you know, the way that the frozen part mm. under the ground is still frozen, and the stuff on top isn't frozen, so you can imagine what that does. Ooh. And uh, it ain't pretty. So we get these we get these micro mud seasons sometimes when we have a January thaw, and we had a we had a we had a January thaw in late December, and then we had uh, have had a couple other January thaws, and and then what happens is it freezes, so you get nice frozen mud including mud ruts in the road. So it's a very um, complex thing. It's not that cold, though. So we haven't been, you know, we're not running out of winter winter wood for our wood stoves, but um, we are uh, maybe running out of shoes because they're getting so messed <laughs> up from the, from the mud. <laughs> well, brother, I thought on our Wisdom Wednesday we could talk about a bunch of things. First of all, um, there was a, uh, on the Feast of St. Anthony the Abbot is a significant day to the St. Benedict Center. You want to explain? Yeah, 74 years ago yesterday, um, the Slaves of Mecca and Mary were founded. And uh, that was a, that's a big deal for us. So that's the that's kind of our um, foundation day, the feast of Saint Anthony the Abbot. And and it wasn't planned that way, but of course Saint Anthony the Abbot is himself regarded as the father of all monks. And and in the history of religious life, he's a very very important character. Now, on Sunday, I uh, made the announcement for Our Lady of Mount Carmel, and I got to tell a little bit of the story of Saint Paul the Hermit. 
which I had not read uh, previously. And it was very, uh, what a great story. They could make a movie about all of these Desert Father men. But he lived to be, what, 113 years old? St. Anthony lived to be 105. And St. Paul the Hermit was 113 or 118? Uh, okay, that I don't have off the top of my head. Yeah. I know the oldest, the, the oldest uh, saint in the New... new is um, St. David of Wales, who, who who lived to 140. Wow! Didn't know that. Did not know that. Uh, but this is what I found, uh, something about uh, your story at Catholicism.org about St. Anthony Abbott that I did not know, that he told the story of St. Paul the Hermit because he went to go visit him, and the story was then written down by, or written by St. Jerome, and... St. Augustine, before he was St. Augustine, had actually heard the story of St. Paul the Hermit and uh, was inspired. This was uh, apparently one of the inspirations for St. Augustine uh, converting to the faith, right? Okay, so it's a little, it's a little, so it's a little different than that, but it's close. So, what happened was Saint Saint Anthony the Great, as he's known in the East, also Saint Anthony the Abbot. Um, he was, you know, not to be confused with the Franciscan saint who died in 1231, right? Completely right. different. The right. one that we pray to when we lose our keys. Right. But he was actually a great doctor of the church, uh, and was a great preacher. But um, Saint Anthony the Great was his life was keep in mind he's from um egypt right so the the deserts of egypt this is where the the early uh monks went to sort of do battle and saint anthony's life was written by saint athanasius okay the the saint athanasius saint athanasius the great he's also called in the east um but there there are other saints athanasius but saint athanasius the great wrote his life because it was the monks that had protected saint athanasius when he was fleeing uh from f fleeing um, persecution when he was going to be arrested uh monks hid him out in their caves and he now saint Athan saint anthony died in the year 356 which would have overlapped with saint Athanasius's life. So he wrote the life of Saint Anthony, and that life of Saint Anthony, that written by Saint Athanasius, of course in Greek, spread around. It went, it got to the West, and it was translated into Latin, and it was um, it was circulating around. And there were a couple of Roman men. One of one of I think they were both senators. At least one of them was a senator who read the life of Saint um, Anthony the Great by St. Athanasius, and were completely moved by it and said, well, why can't we do this? So they made a monastery in like one of their houses, and they, they, they resigned the senatorial rank, which was a big deal. You know, this is a very honorable rank, and the the, uh, the the people were marveling to see these men who had been senators living like poor monks, and living very ascetical lives and very holy lives. And uh, this word, news of this, came to Saint Augustine mm. when he was vacillating uh, on whether or not he would be baptized, or if so, when. And because, as you recall, Saint Augustine was, he was intellectually converted well before he got baptized. Oh, okay. But right, right. he he understood. But remember, I mean, one of his prayers was, "Lord, make me chaste, but not now." 
because <laughs> he was caught up right. in this very, very um, bad lifestyle. He had a mistress with whom he had an illegitimate son, and of course that mistress was nobody that, no, was nobody that he could ever marry, not by the then prevalent social standards in Roman North Africa because she was he was of the higher class she was low class and it was a common institution not unlike the institution in New Orleans that you've spoken of before that gave us venerable Henriette de Lille but there was a common institution a, 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 a degenerate one in Roman North Africa that well-to-do men would have mistresses of the lower classes again this is nothing they would ever legitimize by marriage right because it was just com completely unacceptable socially. So, St. Augustine um, <clears throat> ends up... When he, he, if you if you if you read the um, uh, the confessions, it's when he's read the story of these guys who, because of the story of Saint Athanasius, is uh, because of the story of Saint um, Anthony, written by Saint Athanasius, um, that he's so disturbed. He was very disturbed. Like, well, why can't I do this? You know, why can't I? I can't even get myself baptized. These guys did this, and they were senators. And he was very he was struggling with this a lot. And when he was in this sort of um, disturbed and troubled and, and agitated m mood uh, he, that's when he went out to the, to the garden to get some fresh air and that's when he heard that voice of sing-songy thing of children saying tole legge, tole legge, take and read, take and read and that's when he picked up this book that he had of, uh, the with the epistles of St. Paul in it and his, his, his eyes landed upon those words about um, you know uh, uh, not in drunkenness and rioting, not in chambering and impurities, etc, etc. It's the passage from, uh, it's the epistle that's read for the first Sunday of um, Advent, I believe. And that is what moved him. That's what finally did it. And he and his friend Olypius, who, who was with him, uh, then resolved that they would become baptized. And of course, baptism wasn't enough for St. Augustine. He, 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 had to be, he had to be baptized and become a monk. And uh, this was... Um, this was when St. Monica, of course, sort of sings her Nunc Dimittis and leaves this world uh, because now she's, she's seen her son uh, not, only, not, only become, not only be baptized, but as she said, become a servant of God, which is what was often, which is how monks were often referred to in those days. So that's the connection between St. Anthony the Great and St. Augustine. Uh, an amazing story, as all stories about the life of St. Augustine tend to be. So, Brother Andre, um, the, the, the group of men that we call today the Desert Fathers, uh, St. Uh, Pacomius, St. Amun, St. Basil of Caesarea, St. Macarius of Egypt, and St. Moses the Black. Is that list correct? Oh, well, there's tons of them. Oh, there's tons of them, okay. There's no, there's no one list, but ah. I don't think St. Basil of Caesarea is considered a, uh, a desert father, um, but he's a, he's a father of the church, but um, and he was made a bishop. Um, he, was, he, he was a monk, but I don't think he was, he was not out in the Thebaid. He was not out in the, in the, in the deserts of Egypt where, where the desert fathers were. Okay, so, uh, well, I, I found the text of what I uh, said on Sunday. Uh, so, St. Paul the Hermit is the founder of the Anchorites, and St. Anthony Abbott is the founder of the Cenobites, is that right? 
That's yeah. That, that's what, that's uh, that's how it's most often explained. And they met each other. There are famous paintings of the meeting of Saint Paul the First Hermit. Oh, they're um, they're wonderful paintings. Yeah, with St. Anthony the Abbot. Yeah, some of them are really beautiful. And they only met once, and they had a long, holy conversation. And when St. Anthony was returning to his cave, um, he was illuminated to know that St. Paul had just died. So he turns around and went back, and he went to bury him. And of course, this is in the desert, so the the, the ground's kind of hard, and he didn't have any, and he didn't have a shovel. <laughs> so um, a lion came out of the wilderness, you know, came out of from deeper in the desert, I guess, and and uh, maybe it was two lions, and dug a hole. Sure. Uh, so that uh, Saint a Saint uh, Anthony the Great could bury uh, Saint Paul the First Hermit, and and I think Saint Paul gave him his um, gave his, him his his, his cloak, tunic. which yeah. was made of of um, palm palm leaves, yep. and was woven into a cloak, and he would wear that on on big holy days. <laughs> <laughs> Can you imagine wearing a cloak made out of palm? <laughs> <laughs> on oh any goodness. day, you know one of the things that the fa that the fathers of the church, the desert fathers, did to keep themselves occupied was because they would they would grow their own food, and of course most of them they they lived they they ate like a vegetarian diet, right? They so they would have they would have done some minimal amount of farming just necessary for for them to keep body and soul stitched together. Um, so they would grow they would grow their own food, but they also, in order to keep themselves busy, they would they would um, make baskets. For some strange reason, basket making was a big thing. And think I guess when you think about it, this is one of the bumper crops out in the desert is these palm trees. So they would use the palm trees to make baskets out of. But apparently, they also use the date palms for food too, of course, for the dates. But they would also use them for um, for for clothing. They would they would actually take those things and weave them into clothes, which couldn't have been very comfy. No, it doesn't sound comfortable at all. Uh, Brother Andre Marie of uh, the uh, Reconquest Radio Show as on our Dude Maker Hotline. This is Wisdom Wednesday here, Wisdom Wednesday for the uninitiated. Talking just a little bit about the Desert Father. Others of the uh, the Church of St. Paul the Hermit, St. Anthony the Great, or St. Anthony the Abbot. Brother, if I could just sidebar real quick, because I, 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 I made a mental note that I wanted to ask someone who would know something about this, and it's not me. On Sunday's Mass, at Sunday's Mass, the epistle was from Romans. I want to say it was Romans 12. And it talked about... Uh, 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 all the things that one should do, a Christian should do, and about tending about to the necessities of the saints. Do you do you, do you, do you know this uh, this particular passage? Uh huh. Okay. So my question was, as I'm reading it, going like, well, there's Saint Paul talking about saints, and it seems to me like that you uh, should honor them or pray or, or seek their intercession. But I said before I pronounce on this, let me ask someone who would know. Well, okay, so the passage that St. Paul's talking about, so, so when St. Paul's writing to the various churches that he writes to at Galatia, at Rome, at Ephesus, at Corinth, etc., he's... Uh, he often addresses them in the beginning to the saints who are at the church of X, right? Colossae, say. Um, so St. Paul's using the term 
uh, of living people, of you know, pe- people who, who aren't dead yet. Um, and it, now, when we use the word saint, so a saint is one of those words that has polyvalent layers of meaning, right? Okay. In its most um, in its most expansive term, in its most expansive uh, meaning, a saint is a holy a holy person. Uh, so it's anybody who's in the state of sanctifying grace is a saint. In that, again, most expansive meaning. Now, in its most restrictive meaning, when when we use the word saint, we mean people who are in the in the beatific. I, I, so I guess in its its most penultimately restrictive meaning, we mean people who are in heaven in the beatific vision. Right. In its absolute most restricted meaning, we we mean. Saints were canonized, recognized as such by the church, right? But everybody who's in the beatific vision, canonized or not, um, is a saint uh, in that sense, in that highest sense. But, uh, but, but, you know, all those on earth who are in the state of sanctifying grace are saints. Now, it's not part of our common practice to go around referring to our fellow believers who are in the state of sanctifying grace as, as saints. saints. <laughs> but, but that is, in fact, what St. Paul was doing. Okay. Because he says, in carefulness, not slothful, in spirit, fervent, serving the Lord, rejoicing in hope, patient in tribulation, instant in prayer, and communicating to the necessities of the saints. And uh, it was just communicating to the necessities of the saint that I was curious about, and thank you very much for the, uh, that explanation. Um, Brother Andre Marie is with us here on our regular Wisdom Wednesday. Uh, we want to talk a little bit today here about the article that is at crisismagazine.com, and it's just kind of the thought starter for the subject, of which uh, I believe we have treated of and covered before, but it's a good one. And it's coming up, and it's going to become more important, I believe. And I think Regis Martin is right, is correct about this. It's called A Hill on Which to Die is the Peace. Will the defense of marriage be the hill on which we Catholics die, he asks. Of course, that rather depends on how willing we are to stake everything, or everything, Upon a truth that, however much we believe it to be grounded in divine revelation, is nevertheless rejected by almost everyone else, including great numbers of our fellow Catholics. Which would be Joe Biden Catholics, wouldn't it? Countless cafeteria Catholics, as it were, whose numbers to judge by current approval ratings appear to be legion. Are we prepared to stand against these people for the sake of a mere marital bond? Do we really believe, Mr. Martinez, in other words, the teaching of the Catholic Church concerning the union of one man and one woman, that it constitutes a sacrament indissoluble in the sight of God? And will we, in mounting its defense, be forced to go all the way to the cross? If so, we should find ourselves in some pretty good company. Historically speaking, that is, we'd be surrounded and sustained by a great and mighty cloud of witnesses. Will that consolation, I wonder, be enough to steal the nerve in the face of the world's rejection? So, brother, that's a pretty powerful poke, if you will, by Regis Martin and all the faithful out there. 
Yeah, well, I mean, I, I, I agree. It, it is certainly a hill to die on. I mean, there, there are many uh, hills to die on. Um, and, and it's interesting because even though he's talking about it being a matter of revelation uh, in, the, in the passage you, you, you just read, really what, what's being defended when, when, when you're defending it against the woke mob and, the, and, the, and the, you know, the tranny monsters and all these people who are attacking it, right. um, you're, you're defending something natural. You're defending what, what, what was instituted in the Garden of Eden. You're defending a, a natural bond between a man and a woman. Um, now, it was elevated by Christ to something supernatural in, in the gospel. We know that, and to, to a sacrament. But, uh, you know, all you have to have is natural reason to know that what these people are coming out with, what, what the, the, the homosexual mafia and the, and the trannies and all that are coming out with, um, is is a, an abomination. And you, you've played that clip over and over of that unnatural woman talking about how, yeah, you know, it was a victory when we got um, queer marriage, but that's not the point. We, we don't like marriage. We want it destroyed. Oh, yeah. Masha, so, Masha, Masha, Masha Gessen. Okay, so she so so she admitted openly. I mean, which showed showed some sort of evil integrity, I suppose. Um, <laughs> she she admitted quite openly that they hate this. It's a, it's a it's a what did she call it? I think she called it a quaint heterosexual institution. No, here I actually have um, the clip, brother. Let's let's listen to it real quick. I um I mean I agree. It's a no brainer that uh, that we should have the right to marry, but uh, I also think. Equally, that it's a no-brainer that the institution of marriage should not exist. So, uh, Yay! That, Yay, my uh, that causes my brain some trouble, uh, and um, and part of it why it causes me trouble is because uh, fighting for gay marriage generally involves lying about what we're going to do with marriage when we get there. You know, because we lie that the institution of marriage is not going to change, and that is a lie. The institution of marriage is going to change, and it should change. Um, and again, I, I don't think it should exist. Um, All right, so the, so there it is. And again, I don't think it should exist here. And as you said, there's some... I think later on she refers to it as a quaint heterosexual institution. She does, but it's, it's, Which, it's, it's, it's a very it's a four and a half minutes long. But yeah, when she gets... Oh yeah, we, don't need, to, we right. don't need to listen to these mad women... These, <laughs> This mad woman's ravings, but but that that's the that but that but this is what the agenda is, of course. And they don't they don't care about marriage. They they just care about their their unnatural lust and their and 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 their hatred for the nuclear family and their hatred for patriarchy. I mean, you heard that cheering, and to, what what that cheering to me um, suggests is these are all feminist nuts who equate marriage with some sort of forfeiture of uh, uh, female autonomy. And, and it is a forfeiture. It's also a forfeiture of male autonomy as well because we, we, we're not autonomous when we enter into marriage. Um, when, 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 when we humans enter into marriage, we are giving something up. We're giving up our complete independence. And, and, and if people don't embrace that fact that it, that it requires that, that you're, you're forging a relationship of dependence upon another person and that you are going to generate dependents who are going to be very dependent upon you, 
you know, a dependent isn't just somebody you get to write off on your tax return. <laughs> a, 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 a dependent is somebody who needs you for life and for sustenance and for teaching and for you know learning th what's true, good, and beautiful, and so forth. Um, so th th these these folks have this delusion of autonomy and this delusion of absolute independence. And and you notice what happens to them because the people who embrace this agenda fully become the most deranged dependent people around these are the these are the kids that are you know they're not kids but they're biologically adults who are living like kids in their parents basements when they're 30 years old right. and they're completely they're completely um, incapable, oftentimes, of, of providing for themselves. Right? I mean, they, they've they've been they've been infantilized and made um, what's the right word? Completely captive and 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 um, enchained by their false notions of independence and autonomy and freedom. Subservient. It's, 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 it's a it's a beautiful irony, kind of like that guy who tripped and, and got poked by Saint Michael's sword. <laughs> uh, by the way, if you hadn't brought that up, I was all ready to say, "Hey, Mike, did you read this story?" <laughs> I, by the way, whoever wrote the article, I thought showed a little bit of artfulness at the bottom because the last paragraph is a single line. The statue of St. Michael the Archangel was unharmed. Was unharmed. <laughs> now, somebody <laughs> chuckled when he was writing that. Oh, I chuckled when I read it. <laughs> <All right. laughs> okay, brother, let's stay on the, let's stay on the subject of marriage. Hey, let's go Sorry. Back, can we, let's go back to Sunday's Mass because the reading for Sunday's Mass from the Gospel was the Gospel of St. John and the story of the wedding and marriage at Cana. You know, I was listening to a radio show on Saturday, and I don't do this very often. No names are going to be mentioned. But I listened to a radio show, and a conversation came up about, well, is it sinful for a Christian to cohabitate, to live uh, together? And one of the guys on the show went like, wow, there's nothing in Scripture that says that it's not, dot, dot, dot. And I went, yes, there is. And I almost called. I almost called the show. I went, yes, there is. He went to a wedding at Cana, not a shack-up party. He witnessed, he went to go witness a marriage, or marriage, as the princess bride would say it. And it worked a miracle there just to, to cement this, this, this beautiful story into our minds. So when, when someone says, this doesn't matter, you guys should just drop this. As Regis Martin makes the case... To drop the defense of marriage, brother, is to say that St. Thomas More did something that was completely vain. Good point, um, and St. John Fisher. And there's a, there's an excellent, uh, oftentimes, and this is something I realized a few decades ago, when we compromise, when we compromise some point of doctrine or morals, Oftentimes, what we can do when we when when we when we see this, when we see whatever the issue is, look back at church history, and you'll find that there were a whole pile of martyrs who died because of this thing. Right. That were that that people now are countenancing, just sort of chucking out the window in order to keep up with the Joneses and the Anglican Church, and 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 sort of get along with the world, huh? And which, no offense to any Anglicans out there, but Anglican is, and by the way, Anglicans know this better than anybody else. The Anglican Church is basically Christianity in complete and total conformity to the standards of the world, or rather, complete and total conformity to the standards of the ruling classes. 
That's what Anglicanism always it always was from day one, and that's why it, it that's why it's an extremely vacillating thing. So there are many Catholics uh, who look at the Anglican Church sort of with envy because Anglicanism, in its willingness to to conform itself to the most perverse. Um, uh, trends and tendencies in, in in modernity and especially of the ruling class um, is is something that presents them with you know a, a, something that they envy because they happen to like these sins too. So, but, but let's be honest and let's 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 look at the fact um, the church was given the truth to teach to mankind. She is she she has exclusively been given the truth to teach to mankind. Yes, there are truths which are naturally accessible, which we can we can know from the use of unaided natural reason. There are truths of revelation that people who are outside the church happen to believe, but they don't believe it based upon the authority of the church teaching. They be believe it based upon their own personal opinion, their own personal read of the Bible. I'm, I'm arguing with some Protestants on our website. For some reason, a couple, bunch of Protestants discovered some stuff about the perpetual virginity of the Blessed Virgin Mary, and they're attacking <laughs> it on our website. I mean, and they're telling me, one guy actually lectured me on the Greek words for for uh, brother and sister and daughter and they, they, all these different words that were used in this one passage of scripture which he's interpreting to mean that blessed, the Blessed Virgin had other children. And I haven't answered him yet because I haven't been at leisure to, but but what I'm going to say to him is and I and 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 it's it's actually kind of kind of pathetic that you think you know Greek better than Saint Saint Basil the Great, who specifically said um, the the friends of Christ do not tolerate uh, the, the, his mother's perpetual virginity being denied. Um, you, you, this man spoke Greek, and he studied the Greek of the New Testament. Mm. You know, he meditated on the scriptures uh, day and night. And you're telling me that you know Greek better than this guy, uh, or Saint or, or Saint Gregorianesianzen. The you know, the, the Greek was their language. You know, they, they are the Greek fathers, <laughs> and you're going to tell me that because you found the word in, in like the Strong's biblical concordance or whatever, uh, with all the meanings that some modern Protestant attached to it, that you you somehow know better what the New Testament is teaching than what these Greek fathers of the church taught. My point in saying this is, it's a make religion. And when it comes, marriage is one of these things which it's so integral to life, it's so wrapped up in our everyday life, and it's therefore so wrapped up in morals that the church has to speak on it. And our, it's our Lord himself who made it absolutely, patently, completely, totally clear that marriage is between a man and a woman and it's indissoluble. Uh, and that if and, and whoever puts away his wife to marry somebody else commits adultery. I mean, and the and the apostles um, were were amazed. They were they were beside themselves, and they said, "Well, if that's the way it is with men and women, then who then then who can marry?" So they were uh, they were uh, you know amazed that our Lord undid the Mosaic law on divorce. And he said, Moses gave you this bill of divorce because of the hardness of your own hearts. But from the beginning, it was not so. So, yeah, and by the way, when we're defending marriage, 
we're defending much more than marriage because remember, marriage is the secondary analogate. It's it, it stands as a pale image of a much greater reality, and that much greater reality is the union of Jesus Christ with his with his church. And Jesus Christ is not an adulterer. He only has one bride. And that bride is the Catholic Church. So when, it, 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 to me there's something very poetic, or at least theologically uh, sound, about people who leave the Catholic Church and form their own churches approving of institutionalized adultery with divorce and remarriage. Because they believe Jesus Christ is an adulterer, because they have him being married to all of these um, false brides, as well as the one true bride that he established himself, that he that came out of his pierced side on the cross with well, the blood of the Eucharist and the water of baptism. Right. Well, well, brother, there is the uh, brother Andre Maria Saint Benedict Center and host of Reconquest Radio here on the Crusade Channel. Brother, there was this, a, a, a documentary or a mockumentary that James Cameron made with a Canadian uh, a, a Jew. His name is Simka Yavovich. And uh, they uh, supposedly there were these ossuaries that were discovered in the Holy City. And supposedly the markings on one of the ossuaries uh, was, 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 was the ossuary that held our Lord's remains. Which right there, you go like, uh, how about no? We know where the remains yeah, well, are. I, 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 the remains I aren't there. Was... There, are no, there are no remains. Yeah, I remember, I remember that the... Um... Wasn't that the thing where it was found in English? Uh, I, 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 I probably saw. I think it, it, I think it was actually in English, supposedly. Uh, I don't. I can't remember. But it was. It was. Um, it was a joke. It was a typical fake archaeological fi find, right. and they dropped it because it was. It was exposed as a complete and total fraud. Right, and they found so it in this sepulcher, and there were other ossuaries there. One that was supposedly Our Lady, and then two that were supposedly sons that would say that these were her sons. I mean, this is the, the this is the uh, 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 the the desperate means with which they are willing to stoop to try to make the point that you were just talking about. And that was on the History Channel. They brought and James Cameron, that James Cameron, he directed that and funded Simka Jovovich's uh, work, if you will. So yeah, well. Now let's let's make one more point about about marriage because Regis Martin makes it. Of course, if you were to regard Rome as having been historically retrograde on the matter of marriage, imagine the salutary shock you'll get when the example of Israel comes up, most particularly in the per person of John, Saint John the Baptist, her greatest prophet. How tolerant of divorce was he? Didn't he get himself thrown into prison? followed a year or so by execution, all because of a rebuke that he delivered to Herod Antipas, ruler of Galilee. What exactly had Herod done to warrant so stinging a rebuke? Divorcing one wife in order to marry another who had likewise divorced her husband sounds like one of the afternoon soaps, doesn't it? <laughs> so. Yeah, yeah. It is not lawful for thee to have thy brother's wife, because because it was he took the wife of his brother Philip. 
And, and, and that's all St. John the Baptist said. That's, all, that's the only thing he said that's recorded anyway. It is not lawful for thee to have thy brother's wife. And she was the, the ferocious one who arranged to have him beheaded. And, and Herod, though, was just a weakling. And let's not forget as well, go back to Henry VIII. How does Henry VIII become the husband of Catherine of Aragorn? His brother dies. His brother married. His brother was Philip, wasn't he? His brother marries Catherine of Aragon, who I believe is a saint. Marries Catherine of Aragon, and then he dies before they can supposedly consummate before they can consummate the marriage because she wouldn't lie and she 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 said yes that that's what happened. He had to write to the Pope for an exception so that he could marry his brother's wife. This is how serious the institution of marriage was taken in Henry VIII's England before his heresy. And yeah. he, he did this. Henry did this. This wasn't someone, this wasn't a, a Cardinal Wolsey telling him to do it. He did it. And the Pope wrote back and said, well, I've examined the case, and I believe that, yes, if the marriage was not consummated, you may marry Catherine. The rest, as they say, is history. Yeah, yeah. Well, and marriage is one of those things. You know, it's it, it's it, it, it's difficult. It's not easy, and so many people get married. And and this is where why priests. We need good priests to give marital instruction. We need good priests to prepare people to receive the sacrament, because it's, it's so many priests are just. You know, they feel as if their hands are tied and they have no right to deny the sacrament to anybody. And they make no demands of, of the couple that come to them. They just sort of catechize them uh, as mentally, minimally as they can get away with. And they make sure to teach them about, you know, natural family planning, which I think is ridiculous. Um, uh, newly married couples don't need to learn that. I mean, if, if there's ever a legitimate excuse for it, that's something that we could, would be found out later during the marriage. And there's not a lot of legitimate excuses for it either, in in, in my opinion. Um, I can give you one. It make twin girls. So <laughs> the, the, the knowledge of what they teach is useful in the actual having a family. Trying to procreate. Oh, absolutely. No, no, no. The, the, the science behind yes. uh, NFP is sound, and it and, and it, it can be used for the for the opposite purpose to try to, to get pregnant. I, I know, yeah, true. So, but I'm I'm talking about NFP as birth control. Let's face it. It's, I mean, right. a lot of people just think it's Catholic birth control. Right. Um, and you know, when you when you separate the two ends of matrimony, I'm sorry, that's the essence of the sin of onanism, and and. Um, you know, the, the, under the direction of a priest, there are times when you can, when you can, that, that, that it would be permissible to do this. Um, but I just, I don't understand um, why it's it's de rigueur in certain dioceses that will go unnamed that a priest <laughs> is expected to teach NFP to uh, a couple who approach him. They're, these couples don't need to know that. They need to know how to live the marriage bond. They need to know what marriage is in its very essence. And they have to realize something of that. They, they have to get some sort of non-sentimental stuff knocked into their heads. Because if you look at the statistics for how many marriages fail, including Catholic ones, uh, in, in, in our current 
ambiance in this country, and I'm sure I'm sure the United States isn't particularly far behind Europe or, or far ahead, whatever. Of oh, Europe we lead on the score. Sure. Um, but uh, but well well um, but I'm not going to assume that Western Europeans are any better off than us. Right, I wouldn't. Um, the 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 thing is when you when you look at the failure rate of marriages, well, what's wrong? People don't know what marriage is. And you know we see it a lot of a lot of quote unquote traditional Catholics approach a priest to get married, and they really aren't interested in the, uh, learning about the nature of the commitment. And the, and they get and they get asked why you want to get married? Well, because we're in love, you know. Um, but that's not why people traditionally got married. And um, you know, for most of the history of the West, marriages were arranged, and you you fell in love with each other after you got married. That's right. And that was good for the children, um, but uh, we, we've crossed. We've we've completely. It's it, you know. I, I think you know. I haven't. I did not have time to read the article that you sent me. I realize it's very short, but I've just been beset. Just, oh, don't worry, you're up. doing fine, brother. You're doing fine. But but I don't know what what points Mr. Martin is making. But if we 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 have failed by letting it get this far. The attack on marriage is something that needs to be taken care of first and foremost in our parishes so that we get marriage right and so that we can witness to the world what the nature of marriage is. If, we, if we, we've essentially waited to get to the point where people are equating marriage with sodomy or equating marriage with you know, unnatural relations between women or whatever uh, and, and making marriage a sort of a temporary contract. And if we've, if we've gotten to that point, we're beyond, we're, we, we've just waited too long. You know, it's 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 past midnight. You know, we're 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 in bad shape. Um, but the way to recover this is to do what we should have been doing all along, which is to recover proper catechesis about sacramental matrimony in the in the church. Because if it can't be fixed first in the church, there is zero hope of winning culture wars outside the church. No, zero. No, I, you know, I completely agree. And you know what? Uh, after Rod Dreher apostatized and left the Catholic Church. Uh, one of the things that uh, that he was constantly writing about was trying to to, to stave off what ultimately happened in Obergefell, uh, which was gay marriage, as they call it. And when Obergefell was passed, you know what Dreher, the, the I don't know what Dreher is today, uh, Orthodox, Anglican, I don't know what he He's is. Orthodox. Orthodox. He's Orthodox. I don't know what Rod is, and I pray he comes back to the church, because we could use a good writer like him. Um, but but he, signaled, he said it's over. We lost. We've lost the culture. This part of the culture war has been lost. We surrendered. We completely blew it. We botched it. And now, uh, and uh, uh, he was just wondering out loud, I don't know where to go from here. I don't know what to do. I think your solution, your suggestion is good. Now, let's go back to Regis Martin real quick. And i got to get you out of here so you can get back to your, uh, your schedule. What could be more natural or necessary to the maintenance of a functioning society than the fidelity which marks relations between married men and women? Now, I could stop right there because he quotes Chesterton after that. Stability in society. Stability is a good thing. You want a stable society. You want stable families. You, you want to be able to rely. You want your neighbor to be the guy who is your neighbor or the family that is your neighbor. This is what makes community. Now, I suggest everyone get Robert Nisbet's book, if you have any questions about this, 
written in 1958, The Quest for Community, because this is explained. You have to have families. You don't have families, you're not going to have communities. And, you know, brother, when you were talking about how the old, most marriages were arranged, have you ever heard my Don Livingston story about that? Yes. <laughs> well, uh, and the story is we were having a conversation after a, a, a speech that I have given one day, and the, the guy that invited me, me and Professor Livingston, went to Awful House for breakfast, and the subject of marriage came up. And uh, the guy that hosted goes, well, you know, thankfully we did away with arranged marriages a long time ago. And Professor Livingston just stopped and said, uh, pardon me, but can you explain to me exactly what was wrong with arranged marriages? Uh, I think I have a right to choose who's going to be the father of my future grandchildren. <laughs> <laughs> Well, you know, I, talk, I, I may have mentioned this on air before, but I talked to an Indian priest. I talked to a couple of Indian priests about um, how marriage goes in India and among the Catholics. They don't believe in dating. They don't believe in any, they don't believe, this whole, this whole dating culture that we allow our adolescents to do in the United States, it's all a ritual rehearsal for divorce and remarriage because it all establishes a pattern of breakups and hookups and breakups and hookups and break. And when I say hookup, I just mean to getting together romantically. I don't mean necessarily what's called hookup in the lowest common denominator <laughs> area. But when we talk about um, when we talk about dating and boyfriend and girlfriend and all that stuff, when it's completely inappropriate because they're not ready to get married, we are preparing them for divorce. And we're, we're introducing them to the notion of romance before, way before they understand the notion of commitment uh, to, to have a, a marriage. And we, we see it around here. I mean, I know parents who are just clueless on this. And we have made it really clear to parents, you know, we don't have couples in our school. There, there, are, there are no couples <laughs> because these, these children are not ready to be married. And, of course, when something happens, you know, oops, how did that happen? Well, um, yeah, because you, you allowed your precious darling to be all romantic-y and stuff instead of making them wait till they're ready to get married and then you and then you get interested in courtship and having a relationship with, with a member of the opposite sex. When you're ready to approach the altar to get married. And this has been lost. This is one of the reasons we have so many divorces. You don't, uh, but I mean, I talked to Indians about this. I talked to this Indian priest. I asked this old Indian priest. I explained to him what dating is, what casual dating is in the Western world and in the United States of America in particular. And his response to me was hilarious. He said, in India, not even the Hindus do that. <laughs> <laughs> like this was so wicked and so you know nonsensical and so uh, uh, bereft of common sense and and elementary um, you know just just normal uh, uh, understanding of how these things work you know that not even Hindus would do that he, he said and and um, you know, all the marriages were arranged, and then I had a young Indian priest. I asked him more about it, and he said, "Oh, yeah, all the the, the marriages are among the Christians as well as among the Hindus in India are all arranged marriages. The families get together and they decide. Okay, well, your your number one son is really good for our number two daughter. They're 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 uh, they're very compatible, and because the parents know the psychology of their children, they have a certain common sense about their." children. 
children. And they talk through these things. And what happens is, when when the marriage happens, and when and they don't, and oftentimes they don't even see each other until just before the marriage. And when the marriage happens, if there's trouble, the parents help. Now, I, I don't. I don't think the idea is that they nose in, but if there's a problem, they can help sort of negotiating things and explaining to their offspring, okay, well, this is just a normal sort of bump in the road for marriage. Right. Don't get all thrown off about it. Um, but you've, you've, you've got this, and, and the divorce rate in India, India, last I checked, was about 1% or le- slightly less than 1%. I've seen that stat. Can, Compared to the United States of America, where it's where I've heard I've heard um, I've heard something like only one third of marriages survive, but I, I think that's really skewed by what we Catholics would recognize as not real marriages anyway, because it's like a second, third, or fourth marriage. Um, and of course, once you have a divorce, that makes you much more likely to have a divorce in your next marriage. <clears throat> So um, it, it, it's an absolute train wreck, and the only way we can fix it is by getting back to some normalcy. And it's got to begin in the church and in and in our homes, where we have proper instruction and a, a proper. Um, and I said, yeah, priests have to give marriage instruction, but but also the Catholic families who present their children to the priest, you know, to get marriage instruction, have to do important preparation ahead of time, wow. like not encouraging their children to date. In fact, saying, yeah, we have an understanding in this household. None of you date until you're ready to get married, period. That's just the way it goes. Yeah, well, I can and, tell you, you know, that... You don't, you don't go to dances where you're groping all, each, all over each other. You know, these are things that are now accepted in our society, and they shouldn't be accepted in the church. Well, I can tell you that there are Catholic families right here in our area here that you have met that are trying to teach and enforce exactly that. And they are having some success. Brother, we're just we're out of time, uh, but I wanted to just cl- uh, finish this off because Mr. Martin quotes Chesterton on this. I know, okay. brother, I know Brother Francis loved Chesterton. I love Chesterton. You love Chesterton. And he quotes him as thus, The enemies of true love, Chesterton tells us, have invented a phrase, a phrase that is a black and white contradiction in two words, free love. As if a lover ever had been or ever could be free. It is the nature of love to bind itself. And the institution of marriage merely paid the average man the compliment of taking him at his word. Modern sages offer to the lover, with an ill-favored grin, the largest liberties and the fullest irresponsibility. But they do not respect him as the old church respected him. They do not write his oath upon the heavens as the record of his highest moment. They give him every liberty except the liberty to sell his liberty, which is the only one that he wants. So, <laughs> uh, Chesterton asserting the entire, uh, the entire, uh, the entire supported debate out, uh, brother. Tonight's episode of Reconquest, I just happen to have a cheat sheet here, is episode 359, The Good Samaritan. Tell me all about it. Yeah, I just sort of um, straight out gave an exegesis on the parable of the Good Samaritan, and I explained who the Samaritans were, and what uh, what their um, what the relationship between the Jews and the Samaritans uh, Samaritans uh, was, wh- wh- where Samaria is, what it is, and what it represented to Jews of our Lord's day, and why the parable of the Good Samaritan was kind of shocking in certain ways owing to that. Um, 
Yeah, it was, we, we've been listening to Brother Francis uh, on St. Luke at, at, our, at our readings at table. And um, he's, he had some very powerful um, little comments in, in that on, on um, the, our Lord and his relationship with these Gentiles. And in a lot of ways to the Jews of that day, the Samaritans were worse than Gentiles because they were mutts. They were part Jew, part Gentile. And they were um, being sort of a result of Assyrian social engineering. Um, they, they were hybrid, hybridized Jews. And th- this made them even more odious to the Jews of our Lord's day. So our, our Lord was once insulted. You know, the, the, do, we, do we not say well that thou art a Samaritan and hast a devil? And when he defended himself, he said, well, I don't have a devil. He didn't say I'm not a Samaritan. And I think the reason why, they all knew he wasn't a Samaritan. But the reason why he didn't use that is because he actually preached this parable of the Good Samaritan, which clearly portrays him as the Good Samaritan, because the Samaritan was sort of an outsider, rejected, outcast, somebody hated, which the Jews uh, that, that ended up killing our Lord proved that that's how they saw our Lord himself. But so there's a lot to um, to it, and when you understand the the animosity that existed between the Jews and the Samaritans, it explains certain the significance of certain things, like chapter four of Saint John, where you have the Samaritan woman at the well, and certain other events that happen. So hey, that's that. By the way, the week before, Mike, can I do a quick plug for something else? Absolutely. The week before, the show of last Wednesday was on the Church Unity Octave. That Church Unity Octave starts today. Um, so I, uh, I, I highly encourage everyone to join us. I am dropping the link in the, in the chat room, which will allow people to find not only that particular um, episode, but it will allow them to get the prayers to join us in the Church Unity Octave, which we do those prayers every year. At beginning today, at the Feast of St. Saint Peter's Chair at Rome, which was stupidly suppressed in the 62 Missal, by the way, by John the 23rd, um, and ending on the Feast of St. Paul's Conversion, uh, which is the 25th of January. Fantastic. I look forward to reading that and joining you in the prayers. And episode 359, A Good Samaritan, available tonight uh, at crusadechannel.com as part of your regular Founders Pass membership. Of course, all previous episodes are available there as well. Uh, Brothers, just quickly, where can we find the Brother Francis talking about the Gospel of St. Luke? Can we listen to this? Um... Well, he did. He did um, commentaries on the Gospels in classes uh, at, at the center years ago. The, the one from St. Luke goes back to the 70s, 76, I think. Father Feeney was still alive. Um, but yeah, the, the, the Gospels are all on. Uh, the, Brother Francis's classes on the Gospels are all on sale on store.catholicism.org. Okay. And see, it's some of his best material. See, free shameless plug there. By the way, while you're there, if you want to pick up a copy of Philosophia Perennis, the entire 124-course lecture series, BJM, that's code for Brother Joseph Mary, gave me a discount code to give to everyone, brother. If you use the code Whole Truth, that's one word, W-H-O-L-E-T-R-U-T-H, Whole Truth, 
The St. Benedict Center will give you a discount on the 124 lectures and eight sections on Philosophia Perennis, and I highly suggest all of you take it. All right, brother, a very, very uh, interesting and fact-filled and inspiration-filled Wisdom Wednesday is over. I will send you back to your class to go make the future saints and geniuses on our behalf. All right. <laughs> tall order, Mike. Tall order. All right. <laughs> You're Thank up to you so it, much. brother. You're up to it. <laughs> God bless you, and God bless our listeners. All right. God bless you, brother. We'll see you next week. All right. It's Brother Andre Marie from St. Benedict Center.